This episode is brought to you by Genentech. Welcome to this week's episode of the PQI podcast. This week, we sit down with Allison Carulli to discuss the Vinclexta PQI she authored and other updates in AML. Allison is a hematology oncology clinical pharmacist at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Allison recorded this podcast live in her workstation, so you will hear the sounds of the hospital around her. Okay, thank you so much, Allison, for joining us on the PQI podcast today. To start out, will you please introduce yourself and tell our audience about your current role? Hi, thank you so much, Ginger. Uh, so my name is Allison, um, and I am a current, I'm currently a clinical pharmacy specialist at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, and I specialize primarily in leukemia and hematopoietic stem cell transplant patients. Um, so I've been a oncology pharmacist for about seven or eight years now, um, and I've been in my current role for about four years or so, um, and where um, I work with the leukemia and the transplant patients in terms of rounding with the physicians and making recommendations on uh-huh. current therapies. But thank you so much for having me. Will you tell us about your path, your pharmacy path, and kind of life path to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, so I actually got really lucky because the second I heard about pharmacy, I just instinctively was like, I want to do this. And I really couldn't describe why. And everyone um, in high school was like, why, why? And I was like, I want to do it. Um, and I got really lucky that I love it um, and that it's really been kind of my passion. Um, but I became primarily interested in probably oncology in, in, in school and I was with, actually, I had a great therapeutics professor in oncology, and I was like, this is the most interesting thing we've done um, in therapeutics so far, and I kind of started talking to her, and she was really kind enough to be like, you know, I'm I'm thinking of starting up a elective in oncology, and if you wanted to kind of be a part of that, and I said, definitely, Um, so I learned a lot more about oncology there and in school, and kind of used residency as a way of solidifying that I wanted to do oncology, because Oncology is definitely, I think, one of the most interesting in pharmacy uh, is pharmacy needed fields. Um, there's always drugs um, coming out that everyone is changing therapies and more and more specialties are emerging in oncology and it's targeted therapies that we're kind of learning about. And I think that oncology pharmacists can definitely have a really great role there. So I kind of used residency to really solidify that thought and kind of confirm that. And then I went on to a second year residency in oncology because of that and was very fortunate uh, to finish and do very well there and kind of moved on to just being like, I really want to help as many patients as possible and see as many interesting things as I can in oncology. And that kind of led me to an academic medical center type of picture um, and with the goal of kind of trying to focus and see as many different things as I could. So trying to kind of really be in a place where there's expert physicians and expert nurses and nurse practitioners and everything in this field that can kind of help me to learn and so that I can also help to teach them. And I was very fortunate in that I landed at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, which really has been everything and more in those respects in terms of working with great people um, that are very, very intelligent and working really hard towards cancer. clearing cancer and getting rid of it completely. Um, And it's really been great to kind of see those types of 
different trials that are going on and seeing that interest um, and being able to do my part in the oncology pharmacy portion of making those recommendations and trying to keep patients as healthy as possible. Um, so that's kind of where I ended up, how I kind of got here and still love it. So that's great. That is great. So I love it that your interest in oncology started in pharmacy school. I think ENCODA has really tried to grow our uh, pharmacy student, the PSO program, because of that, a lot of students don't necessarily get that exposure to oncology. So I love it that you had a professor and that interest stemmed from that. Um, and so to continue, typically we end the podcast with this question, but you authored a PQI and I want to talk about that PQI on the podcast. So we'll kind of start with it at the beginning and I'd love to go ahead and talk about it, but you authored the PQI for Vinclexta. So we call this the PQI podcast to bring awareness to ENCODA's positive quality intervention resource. What value do you see in the PQI resource? Yeah, so I think for pharmacists and patients, one of the biggest difficulties about chemotherapy is that they list like every single side effect that you can dream of and every single monitoring. And it's really hard to kind of know what's clinically relevant and what you should really actually kind of be looking out for um, with each agent, especially when you're not familiar with them. And that's why I think like these kinds of resources like ENCODA's PQIs um, and those types of things are really such a big deal and so helpful because you have these experts in these fields that are kind of helping you to learn exactly what to focus on and um, kind of focus on those most important counseling and management for each of these medications or disease states so that you can actually get give the patient the best care possible and so that you can learn as well and help um, to kind of help the patient stay informed about the medications. That's what I think these PQIs do. They really are super helpful in terms of really making everyone familiar, who isn't familiar with those agents, really making sure that they can use these resources and really help patients as much as possible. Great, great. I, I agree with all of your points. And then following up on that, Vinclex, the PQI that you authored, will you give us an overview of that uh, PQI in particular, including the important points from it? Sure. Yeah, so the main focus was on venetoclax specifically in the treatment of um, AML or acute myeloid leukemia. Um, so as a whole, there are really limited treatment options for elderly patients who are diagnosed with AML and who are not eligible for intensive chemotherapy. And their long-term survival rates are only about 10%. So there's definitely been an unmet need um, in terms of treatments for these patients. And venetoclax in particular has really been helping to fill that treatment gap. So the FDA recently approved venetoclax in combination with um, either a hypomethylating agent like azacitidine or decitidine or low doses of cytarabine for patients who have newly diagnosed AML and who are over 75 years old or have comorbidities that make them ineligible for intensive chemo. Um, and they did this based on the, what's called the Viali-A trial which was a phase three placebo-controlled trial of 431 patients with AML who were ineligible to standard induction chemotherapy, um, similar exactly to what the FDA approved it for. And patients were randomized to either receive azacitidine, which is a hypomethylene agent, and venetoclax once daily, um, or azacitidine and placebo. So it's a placebo-controlled trial. 
Um, and what this trial showed was actually a really um, positive result in the Venetoplex groups. So the Venetoplex group had a higher overall survival and overall um, CR rates or complete remission rates. So the overall survival was 14.7 months in the Venetoplex group compared to 9.6 months in the control group or the placebo group. So that's you know, a good five more months um, better from the Venetoplex standpoint. Yes. And the Yes, and, and the composite complete remission, so that was kind of your complete remission in those, um, and also patients who had a complete remission but didn't quite recover their white blood cell counts or their platelets, was about 66% in the Venetoplex group compared to 28% in the placebo group. So, so clearly showing like a huge benefit in these patients. Um, and that was really exciting. That's kind of where the FDA approvals have come from. Um, but of course, there's always side effects that go along with those therapies. Um, so the main ones that we're watching for are the hematologic toxicities um, and tumor lysis syndrome. So tumor lysis syndrome wise, um, there's a lot of recommendations to try to mitigate that, um, including cytoreduction, try to make sure the white blood cell count is at least less than 25,000 um, to kind of try to decrease your risk of TLS in the upfront because the Netflix is very... Um, it's very effective right in the, in the beginning, as well as making sure that they have appropriate TLS monitoring and fluids and uric acid lowering agents such as allopurinol or respiracase. Um, and they also do recommend ramping up the dose of venetoclax. So doing 100 milligrams on day one, 200 milligrams on day two, and then the 400 milligrams on day three and on um, to try and make sure that, um, to try and decrease that risk of TLS. Unfortunately, those measures um, do seem to be pretty effective. The initially incidence of TLS is fairly low um, in the trials, as long as you kind of stick to those things. Um, and then the other things, the PQI um, that I also included was just kind of suggestions on how to manage cytopenias for subsequent cycles in terms of considerations of going, uh, giving venetoclax for less than 28 days, um, depending on their, their response, as well as um, kind of how to manage those drug interactions and dose adjustments for venetoclax with CYP3A4 and PGP inhibitors um, are the other things that are in the PQI, which I all, of course, will plug right now to encourage everyone to look at. <laughs> so thank you. No, wonderful. Every, all important points, and we will definitely include the link to your specific PQI. If it's out, I don't know that it's fully published and out yet. Um, and if not, we'll just include that link to the PQI site. And I know it will be up and ready soon. So you've talked about all of the important points, but what was that process like to author the PQI? So I guess kind of how did the process work? And then also how did you determine, you know, the important points that made it to the PQI? Yeah, I think it was really great overall. I want to um, really, the, the, I want to really highlight the Encoda staff. Um, also, were super responsive to all of my questions and very flexible and really helpful overall. So it was really just a really great experience for me um, in that respect. Um, and yeah, I think that's a really good question in terms of what the most important points are. And I think that that's um, to include. And I think that that's kind of really harked back to my own personal experience in leukemia and kind of seeing what the major issues and concerns that we have for patients going forward and the most common questions um, that we see. And of course, also kind of looking at the most important FDA approvals and seeing really what was highlighted in the BIALI A, um, A trials and, and the other trials um, looking at azacitidine in combination with other agents to try and figure out kind of what 
the biggest focus for the future is and what we should kind of highlight. Um, so I think that's kind of how I ended up kind of coming to like, we should, that the best thing to talk about would be the most important FDA approved by LEA trial that kind of got its approval and showing people why it's such a really um, exciting treatment option for patients with AML who, who cannot tolerate intensive chemotherapy, um, as well as, you know, kind of just the things that I come into to practice and have the most, or things that come into my practice all the time, which is those hematologic malignancies and those TLS concerns. Um, so that's kind of how I ended up getting to those, what I think to be the, probably the most important points about Venetoclax um, in a small blurb uh, version. Wonderful. Yes, I, I imagine it would be tough to narr narrow everything down to just those two two or three pages. You know that I feel like that's always a struggle. Um, and then moving from the specific drug to AML in general, I would love for you to go through some ASH updates. And I know another ASH is, get, is getting ready to happen before too, too long, which I can't believe we're almost at the end of the year, but anything that you feel is important in the AML space? Yeah, so, and I think the nice part about um, doing this now is that a lot of the stuff that um, was, was presented at ASH is actually being published. Um, so right. we're actually, yes. Yeah. So I think I have like the, you know, I get the little inside track where I can kind of talk a little bit more about the results because I got to read the whole article. <laughs> so I get, I get to cheat a little bit. Um, but I think that, um, one of the things about AML is that like in the last five years or so, there's really been so many new medications approved in terms of FLT3 inhibitors and IDH inhibitors and venetoclax for, um, AML. So there's been a lot of questions about what can I put together, you know, in combinations. And that's where I think a lot of the new ASH literature is kind of coming from is basically seeing what we can add things to. Um, and the first few I think are that are really exciting that I want to just keep on the venetoclex train um, is venetoclex and gilteritinib, um, which is one of our FLT3 um, inhibitors. And that was um, public. That was uh, presented at ASH this year, as well as recently, very recently published. And it was a phase one B trial um, by Daver et al. And it was of gilteritinib and venetoclax um, in 54 patients who had relapsed or refractory AML. And they got the 400 milligrams of venetoclax daily for 28 days, and they got gilteritinib 120 milligrams daily. So kind of standard doses of what you would think of these. And they actually had some really exciting CR um, complete response rates of 74%, um, which I think is very exciting for the relapse refractory AML especially. Um, and most of these patients had a FLT3 mutation, especially as they went through the trial. Um, so I think that's one of the other key things to think about. Um, and their overall survival was about 10 months. Um, but of course, I think one of the other big things was that 80% of patients experienced cytopenias and 50% of patients have required dose interruptions. So I do think that this is one of the key things going forward for the future phase two and phase three trials is trying to kind of come up with the best way to manage this in terms of maybe less than NFX in certain days and those types of things. Um, so I think those are going to be the future questions that um, this trial kind of um, has coming up and, and has, has managed to uh, kind of come up with for the future ones. Um, and then the other thing that Venetoclex, um, one of the other big things that Venetoclex was added to um, at ASH was FLAG-IDA, um, which is like fludarabine, cytarabine, idarubicin, and GCSF. Um, so Donardo et al. actually did, did a phase one and two trial of 68 patients um, who received FLAG-IDA 
um, and Venetoplex. Um, and these were patients who both had initial um, or newly diagnosed AML, as well as patients who had relapsed refractory AML, so kind of an all-comer trial. Um, and what they did was they did Flygida at your kind of standard doses and added Venetoplex on days one through 14 um, and found really good um, overall response rates of about 70% um, and CR um, rates of about 60% or so. So really kind of exciting. Um, and I think one of the biggest things was that um, patients were, um, had minimal um, in patients who went into a CR, the minimal residual disease was negative in 96% of patients who were newly diagnosed with AML and about 70% who were relapsed refractory. So not only does this work really well, but it also really induces a really deep remission. Um, so I think that that's kind of an exciting upcoming uh, combination that we'll probably be seeing more of as well. And then the other kind of, there's other, probably two other big ones that ASH that have come out that are also really pretty exciting. And one of those is combining ivocidinib or the IDH inhibitor with um, azacitidine um, in patients who were who have newly diagnosed IDH1 um, mutated AML. Um, and this was a phase three trial of 146 patients um, who kind of got our standard dose azacitidine of 75 milligrams per meter square. And then the authors added 500 milligrams of ivocidinib once daily to the, to the patients as, for the patients as well. Um, and this is a placebo-controlled trial. So patients could have either got placebo or ivocidinib with their azacitidine. And what they found was that the overall survival was 24 months in the ivocidinib arm um, compared to 7.9 months in the placebo arm. And the CR rates were pretty high in the ivocidinib arm as well with 47% with compared to 15% in the placebo. Um, so pretty exciting um, information. I do, I do also want to highlight though that um, azacitidine and venetoplex is also approved in upfront therapy, um, and patients can have an IDH1 inhib um, IDH1 mutation. And they did did do a subgroup analysis in the Biali A study of looking at patients who had IDH inhibitor um, IDH mutations and kind of seeing their response rates, and found about like an 80, 70 to 80 percent response rate um, in the patients who received aza azacitidine and venetoplex and had an IDH mutation. So I think that both are really good options for patients. And I think that there's different niches for those, for these agents, because the ivocidinib um, tends to be less myelosuppressive. So those cytopenias aren't there as much. Um, so I think that's something to think about too, where this agent, this, this trial really showed that ivocidinib and azacitidine upfront can be used in patients um, who have IDH1 mutations, especially if they don't have, if they have concerns about myelosuppression or difficulty coming, coming, coming back for transfusions or those types of things. I think that that's a really good option and that was kind of a big thing at ASH. And then the last one from ASH that I wanted to highlight um, was a recently public, published article um, of a phase three trial of gilteritinib and azacitidine versus azacitidine alone in patients with split 3 AML. And this trial actually was terminated early because they didn't find a difference in overall survival between the two. And the CR rates were kind of very similar between the two arms as well. About 16% for the azagilteritinib arm and about 14% for the aza arm alone. Um, but interestingly, the patients who had a CR but did not recover their platelets or their, or their ANC was actually much higher in the gilteritinib and azacitidine arm. 
So it was about 58% um, compared to 26% in the acetylene alone arm. So I think that this trial, although it was terminated early um, because of a lack of benefit, um, really still has kind of opened up a couple questions about why and what can we change in this therapy um, in terms of maybe there was differences in the trial functional status when the overall survival analysis occurred um, and those types of things. So I think that although the gilterin and an azacitidine combo um, was not um, present, did not show a significant benefit um, in the ASH abstract and the recent publication, I think that future, I have, I have a feeling in the future that they'll still kind of keep, kind of keep studying this combination and maybe trying to kind of adjust the doses or see kind of where we can go from there. So that was, so I think we haven't seen the last of gelterin and venazocytidine um, just yet. But those are kind of, I think, probably the biggest ASH updates that are at least the ones that I was most excited about. Thank you. Those are all great. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to go through all of them. Are you headed to ASH this year or will you catch up, catch up after the meeting? I'm not headed this year, unfortunately. I wish I was, um, but I think I'm going to be actually there next year. And then is there anything else you would like to add? I'll have one final fun question at the end, but just anything else about AML or your pharmacy path or anything in general today? I don't think so. You know, I mean, if anyone comes up with how to cure AML, they should, you know. <laughs> uh, but no, no, I don't. I don't I'll steal your idea. So I'll look really smart. <laughs> that that'll be great. I I do hope that that person comes forward and lets you know because that would be amazing. Um, so as our final fun question that we're asking all of the guests on the podcast this season, if you could sit down to dinner with anyone living or in history, so basically anyone ever. Who would it be and why? And then also what would be on your menu? So what would what would you have for dinner? Oh, Which is my favorite part. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a very good question. <laughs> to be honest, it would probably be my great grandfather. Oh um, yeah. And because I actually never met him, but it's it's mostly just because my 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 grandmother doesn't know that much about her history. Um, so she always is like, I never, she never like learned anything about her family and she always wants to know everything. And so she's always tried the ancestry stuff and oh. we really haven't been able to find much. So I think it would be super cool to actually answer her question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And then he's Italian or that's an Italian side of the family. So I have to go Italian here oh, <laughs> yeah. or else I think that it wouldn't go. I, I think the dinner wouldn't go great. Um, yeah. Yeah, but probably it would probably be my favorite Italian dish, which is generic, but I love it absolutely is penne alla vodka. Um, oh. So I think, yeah, I think that would definitely be there with some delicious wine and yeah, probably some bruschetta as the appetizer. That's uh, yeah. amazing. And is there a family recipe or is there a restaurant that you like has the best? Mm. So there is a family recipe, but I can't make it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I can synthesize with you, yes. <laughs> yeah, so I would definitely be at a restaurant, um, um, which, and I will say, like, I have not found the perfect penne alla vodka in, in Philly, so I don't actually have the oh. best restaurant for this. 
You, I know you, this is a quest. <laughs> yes, a, I have, 2023 mission. It really should be because I it's delicious and I want to. <laughs> um, so I yeah I don't have the best restaurant, but I would say like I I think um, I would probably say like family recipe, but then my great grandfather would probably be very ashamed. <laughs> oh, it'll be good. It'll be good. Well, I love that choice. I always love the family choices because I think it's so, it's so important to learn about your history and, and kind of where, where you come from. So great choice. But thank you so much, Allison, for joining us on the podcast today. You have been great and very informative, and I appreciate your time and all that you do for patients. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. It was a really very great um, experience. This episode was brought to you by Genentech. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Allison. To download this podcast, you can search the PQI podcast on Spotify and Apple and remember to subscribe. You can listen on our website at encoda.org. That's encoda.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We would like to thank Encoda for making this podcast possible. Tune in next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody.